the thing is, to get people to accept paper, you had to say, oh, this is actually real money. And paper money was kind of like not a thing. You look at so many different things made in China, made in China, made in China. How did China pull that off? They sold more Depends in Japan last year than diapers. The country is dying out, right? We're close. If all of a sudden Biden said, all right, starting now, we are making a balanced budget. I know it's not that simple, but we are balancing the budget. What's the sacrifice on someone like me? Presidents who have done a good job with economic policy in my adult life, which is the last 45 years, it's been Reagan and Clinton. I don't know that there's anybody else I would point to and say they've done a good job on balance. Many people think from an economic standpoint that, you know, Amazon and Google and like those are the biggest employers in this country. Not even close. It's small business that runs and employs the majority of people in this country. It's just very hard to see that the next occupant of the White House is going to be somebody who's going to have a wise perspective on that. And so I just, my concern is it's going to get worse before it gets better. People want to be assured and have a confidence in a store of value, right? That's what they want. And and we absolutely can do that within this country, provided we do the right thing. So she comes over to the house and I fix her uh, like a plate of like little finger foods and everything. And she points to the strawberries and says, can I eat these? And the best thing for him and his family to watch was her to fall in love with Doritos over and over again. (laughs) She had no clue. She would just open the bag and she'd taste one and just the excitement of her. There is such an incredible toll that it takes on caregivers from an emotional, physical, spiritual, financial, you know, every aspect of their lives. I think about my grandma who just cared for my granny for so long. We would go down there, but every day, day in, day out, it was just her and my granny as my grandmother got older and after my granny passed and she was living by herself starting to wonder like what toll that took on her mentally there is no cure there is nothing that is guaranteed to prevent dementia a lot of folks are terrified of this disease it's not a natural part of aging and while um, i think it's one in three adults over age 80 has some form of dementia two and three don't there are so many different causes of dementia that i think finding it is going to finding any kind of cure or treatment is going to be extremely difficult. Just because I don't believe or agree doesn't mean I can't learn from you. Why did you have to bring that up? (laughs) Okay, that one I'm super embarrassed about. (laughs) Do you like me? Do I like you? Yeah. As as an individual or as a a person? No, I like you. Okay, cool. Cool. And I don't have any interest in appearing to be stronger than I am. I ain't bowed a Nebuchadnezzar statue. He gonna leave. You feel me? How do we love people who see the world differently than we do? What would it look like if we truly loved all of our neighbors? Could listening to their stories be the first step? This is Seacoast Church, and there's way more to talk about. Hey, it's Kiara Lindsay, and we've got a true two-in-one episode for you on this one, because Joey talks to two pairs of people for two different conversations that have absolutely nothing to do with one another. First of all, November's Alzheimer's Awareness Month, a designation made by President Ronald Reagan in 1983. Wow, that was 16 years before I was even born. Alzheimer's is a disease which is a form of dementia that affects the brain's function of thought, memory, and language. It's a month to remind us all about the needed support for the more than 6.2 million Americans living with this disease and their family members who face the challenges of caring for them. Joey and our campus pastor at our West Campus, Jeff Leinberger, have a guest, 
Sarah Perry, who is the Executive Director at Respite Care Charleston. She's a certified dementia practitioner and has a lot of insight to share on the dreadful disease of Alzheimer's. Our hearts go out to all of those suffering, especially the families who walk through these elongated goodbyes. And we're thankful to Sarah for helping us understand more in this episode. The second part of this episode is a talk with two guys way smarter than Joey, all about economics, especially regarding the American economy. Now, for the record, I'm actually currently reading loosely from a script that Joey himself wrote. I would have otherwise never alluded to him not being as smart as the other guests. I respect people who are like really, really old, like the guy from Up Old. Moving on. Everything from the U.S. Federal Reserve to the mechanics of inflation, who are some presidents, two very recent ones at that, who did a great job with the economy, just how in-depth are we as a country, the Great Depression, the economic collapse of 2008, China's impact on our current economy, predictions for the future, and can you believe even more? We're going to go on a limb and guess that even if you don't have a particular interest in economics, you're likely going to be locked in on this one. Because first of all, with Joey, it won't be over your head, and secondly, Jack Hoy and David Chorba are two experts who talk about economics like many of us talk about ice cream or our favorite sports team. They both bring some very interesting insights. You'll hear in this conversation their credentials that qualify them to educate the listenership. We want to thank you all for listening to this podcast, especially our every episode listeners. We love hearing from you. Thanks for all your kind comments and thanks for making this podcast so fun to make and get out to you all. Enjoy the education on this one. Why don't you tell folks who you are? Okay. I'm awkward, first yeah. of all. <laughs> um, Listen, you're not the most awkward at this table. Joey clearly has yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. But for some reason, my I, I've been told that my awkwardness can kind of put people at ease somehow. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. like a special that. power. That's yeah. what some people yeah. say. Definitely. But I don't know. I'm really glad I work with people with dementia because they don't remember my awkwardness. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's okay. Then when I put my foot in my mouth, they forget it. So yeah. it's very and, forgiving that way. And you're from Spartanburg originally, but you've been here for yeah. plus 20 years or plus? Yeah. Okay. I grew up in Sparkle City, but I've been here um, since 2001. And um, this is definitely home to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're here to talk about Alzheimer's. It's, and I, did I say that right? I always get a little, is it Alzheimer's? Yeah. Alzheimer's? Yeah. yeah. Alzheimer's. There's no T in it. <laughs> right. Why are you here at this table? What's your relationship with patients of Alzheimer's? Um, so I'm executive director of Respite Care Charleston. We are a local 501c3. And the whole reason we exist is to help folks who are living with Alzheimer's disease or other forms of dementia. Um, we've been around for about 30 years doing day programs and some other things, but we feel like we've really been growing and, and kind of spreading our services to different areas. We know there's probably 10,000 plus folks in Charleston County alone who are living with some form of dementia. Wow. Um, right? That's that's pretty staggering. Say that number yeah. again. Over 10,000. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch diagnosed, but they say that um, usually for each person that's diagnosed, there's, or every two people, excuse me, that are diagnosed, there's one person who hasn't been diagnosed. Either they're in the early stages or they're, they're not medically homed, perhaps, right. or they feel like it's just a normal part of life so they don't get it diagnosed because it doesn't make a difference to them. So, Lynn, I'm going to tell you something that these we were just talking about this. I'm hoping you've never heard of it because I want to tell you this for the first time. So, you know, Japanese culture, they really revere older people. I don't mm-hmm. know if you knew that. But anyway, there is a restaurant, she's heard of it, where they will not hire you unless you are suffering from dementia 
And if you go to that restaurant to eat, you are there basically saying, I know that my order is going to be messed up. And it's called the Restaurant of Mistaken Orders. And it's a real place in Tokyo. Is that not crazy? That's cool. I mean, and you know, like when you walk in there, it's not to make fun. It's it's like, man, these people are able to work. Mm -hmm. But do you know, I mean, there, there has to be a level that you get to where you can't even do that, though, yeah. right? Because people oh. end up forgetting what food even is, Yes, I would imagine. Um, absolutely. There is a whole spectrum of stages of Alzheimer's or, or other forms of dementia. We've got a group of folks who are in the very early stages who are driving themselves to our program, who are wondering what their future is going to look like, very high-functioning. They're um, there to learn about what's ahead, Um Hopefully, we dispel a lot of myths and things. Um, those folks could run a restaurant, yeah. you know, and I think they could be very successful. And then as folks progress, yeah, it, it gets to where eventually in the latest stages where they're not able to feed themselves necessarily. So it's right. a huge range. And it's unfortunate because I think our our world, a lot of folks just think of, you know, it's a crazy Uncle John at Christmas that just tells the same story over and mm-hmm. over. Or it's the little old lady in the nursing home in a wheelchair that smells like urine. Mm-hmm. And there's these assumptions that that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. When in fact, there is a whole lot of life in between and potentially a whole lot of joy and a whole lot of um, meaningful wow. relationships and experiences and things of that nature. That's good. That's mm-hmm. good. So, Jeff, you are not from South Carolina. No. The rest of us are. Was it weird for you? Because I'm about to talk about my mama. Yeah. When you yeah. came here in South Carolina, was it weird? All the names we had, we had Mimi, Mima, Mama, yeah. mm-hmm. like Priscilla from Iowa. She was just like, we yeah. just call them Grandma, Grandpa. Yeah. And to distinguish one set from another, we say their last name: mm-hmm. Grandma, Grandpa Burgart, yeah. Grandma, Grandpa Halverson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, so it, is it, it weird? Mima, Mama. Yes. Now I will say that um, when my kids were younger, they called me Daddy, and they continue to call me that because that's I think a Southern thing. Like you don't go from Daddy to Dad. It was just so awkward to me. Yeah. Like, dad or mom like that's that's it all right yeah so what's been your closest encounter with some form of dementia and i tell you what let's take this time for you to educate us on and tell me if i have this correct i think that dementia is a general term for memory loss that impedes like how someone does life alzheimer's is the most common disease that causes it yes you are very 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 close Um, just in that um, it's not always memory loss. So dementia is a group of symptoms um, that does almost very, very frequently, it includes memory loss, but it can be other executive functioning, personality changes, a a whole range of other cognitive functions. Um, And yes, Alzheimer's causes about 60 to 70% of cases of dementia at this point, but there are lots of other types that, you know, or other conditions or diseases that can cause it. Yeah. And it's Alzheimer's is the disease basically the brain shrinking as like I would say it's it's more of the brain kind of slowly dying dying okay um, gotcha. what's your closest encounter or have you had any yeah for uh, two two different perspectives so you know I had family members this would be when I was in my 20s but you know I had an aunt and a grandfather that both suffered from it but probably more uh, impactful, I guess, in in my life was just pastoring to people that are in hospice care, struggling with that. I've had a you know really good friend um, whose mother passed away from it um, early on in, in my pastoral ministry. I did a lot of hospice care. A bulk of those patients were struggling from dementia or Alzheimer's. Yeah, my mama 
like very close to her. There was one time where I was super upset in college and I called my parents. They didn't answer. Called my brother. They didn't answer. My third phone call was mm-hmm. my mama. Her and my mom were, you know, best friends. I mean, they're super close. So I remember there was a Christmas gathering. Every Christmas Eve, we got together and we're a very loud family. And so we had this little game where everybody stands in a circle and everybody brought a gift card. And someone says, pass it twice to the left. And we all pass them and, you know, just keep passing them back and forth. And then at the end, you end up with the gift. Well, my mama, she's very obsessed with Christmas and she really loves to buy people presents. And so we, we just thought she was so fixated on that. People were getting annoyed at her because she couldn't keep up. But that was the beginning of yeah. her just not being able to figure out mm-hmm. so quickly. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, because my mom is so close to her mom, Priscilla and I were the first people that I came to my mom and I was like, there's just something about Mama. Like I'm talking to her and there just seems to be some like there's a blankness to yep. her. Like we're still having a conversation. She's hearing and understanding what I'm saying, but there's just something mm-hmm. there. And, you know, so she basically, gosh, she suffered maybe for a decade. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it was a long, long time of of memory loss. How about you, Lynn? What was my granny? So my great grandmother on my mom's side. Yeah. So my mom's grandma. Um, and she lived uh, almost until she went into the hospital and passed. And same thing for as long as I had a memory, we've been closest to my mom's side of the family. So we always spent time in Aiken with my grandma. My granny lived on the same street as my grandma. My grandma cared for her. So all of my memories, especially spending summers at my grandma's house, is going down. And I was always tasked with like defrosting the freezer in the summertime um, and like cleaning out things. And it got to the point when we had to like cut the gas off on her stove because she would turn it on and forget or uh-huh. going down every meal to make sure that she ate. She passed when I was in 10th or 11th grade. So that it, it got harder then just going down to granny's and sitting with her and her at first thinking I was my mom. And then she would realize I wasn't. And then we just, you know, we kind of had the same conversations on loop, but trying to remind her to eat, mm. like cleaning things out of her house when she wasn't looking. That was my, has been my experience. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Sarah? If you had any personal experience, like as far as family members? Yeah, I had um, my papa on my mom's side had it. He and I were always very, very close with him. You know, I was living in Charleston. He was in Spartanburg. Um, and so I was... Usually when I see him, it was for short periods of time once he developed um, dementia. And he was really good at um, what we call show timers. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, where folks with Alzheimer's, they can know how to, and I'm not saying that they're doing this consciously, but where they they can kind of fake it. Mm. You know, there are certain expressions and, and jokes and things that can be repeated and you don't even know that they have it. And so for most of most of the time, that I was with Papa, he it wasn't very obvious. Um, you could tell later in the day sometimes, but he was always just kind of a, a somewhat quiet, jokey guy. So it really wasn't super obvious with him. With my Mima, my dad's mom, uh, it was a little bit different. She, I, I had the opportunity to stay with her, you know, just stay with her for a weekend as her caregiver. And it was most obvious there because she, you know, my sweet Mima became mean. At times, yeah. you know, she knew everything. She was a nurse. I was certainly not going to tell her when to take her medicine. I was certainly not, you know, um, going to second guess her or tell her that she had done X, Y, Z. 
Um, she got really irritable. You know, I saw her most in the evenings. And so, uh, or excuse me, that was when I saw her in the evenings the most. And so those symptoms really came out much more clearly then, which was pretty tough. Yeah. But, you know, my grandmother, it was, it was amazing because in her final stages, actually, I remember the day before she passed away, my dad came to visit. He lives in New Hampshire. She was in a nursing home at that point. And I walked in with my dad. I said, Mima, do you know who this is? She says, well, that's my baby boy. That's my skipper, you know? And so even though she forgot so very, very much, she still knew when she saw my dad mm-hmm. that that was her son, which was pretty amazing. That's, that's cool. cool. Yeah. That's cool. So I've got tons of questions, Lynn and Jeff. Y'all jump in whenever, yeah. and I, you know, I know you know a lot, but it's okay. I I have some off the wall questions. Maybe some of them you don't know. I don't yeah. know. Bring it on. But my, my <laughs> the the first question I have is: so have y'all seen the movie Still Alice by any chance? No. So it's it's a devastating story. It's not based on a true story, I don't think, but it's a it's a very bright professor in her, I think, early to mid-50s. Mm-hmm. And she starts getting, I don't know if it's Alzheimer's or a form of dementia, but it, Juliana Moore, y'all know who that is? A really good movie and pretty heart-wrenching. Yeah. I mean, we watched it around the time when my mama was going downhill, so it was it was kind of helpful, uh, you know, to see it portrayed so accurately. I, you know, so that's an exception. That's pretty early, right? Um, early 50s, I mean, that's... That's, that for, for Alzheimer's, that's, yeah, that's early. That's early onset. Um, but for other types of dementia... That's not that old. Uh, 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 okay. I'm getting older and I forget things and it just feels like I'm slowing down a little bit, but I'm not stamping dementia or Alzheimer's on me. Like, is there any possible way in the early stages that someone can be like, whoa, this is something different or you just kind of have to wait and see? It's sometimes tough to differentiate what's kind of normal forgetfulness or maybe not paying attention, uh, things like that. I mean, we've we've all walked into a room and thought, oh, man, what did I come in here for? Yeah. You know, that's really more of... Um, probably a, a sign that we weren't as focused on that task or we got distracted by something else in the process. Those little things or, you know, tip of the tongue moments, those are normal parts of life and parts of aging. I mean, think about it. Our brains forget stuff all the time. I couldn't tell you what you were wearing last yeah. time I saw you, Pastor Jeff, mm-hmm. because it's not, you know, it's not one of the things that my brain needs to hold on to. So we're constantly forgetting things and having little moments here and there is normal. Um, when they become persistent and they really start to impact your day-to-day life, that's when you you need to go and, and talk to a doctor. Yeah, It is less common and younger ages, but I mean, I think the youngest person I've worked with was 48, and she was pretty advanced. Now, it wasn't Gosh. Alzheimer's disease, but um, <clears throat> yeah, it was... Yeah. You can't help but to be a little like, oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you're older than yeah. I, I am. Yeah. 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 Well, and this woman. <laughs> <laughs> Grandpa Jeff's older than 48. <laughs> well, and this woman had done everything right. She was very athletic. She was, um, she ate healthy. She was smart. She, you know, defied most of the, the, risk factors, you know, well-educated. Frankly, she was white. She was, you know, middle income, uh, upper income, a lot of those things that are make you less likely. But she developed what was called frontotemporal dementia. And and that honestly was marked more by personality changes early on Gosh, than it was forgetfulness. That is so devastating to people around them. I mean, obviously for that person. So my mama pretty much was in denial the whole time. You know, until and and because she just she didn't want to admit she was always very self sufficient. She didn't want to depend on people, and so we're pretty sure she knew something was going awry 
but she just didn't communicate it. Actually, that's a, a great point and um, yet not necessarily true. Um, sometimes, yeah, sure, some people are in denial, but a lot of times the brain is not able to accept or understand that something is wrong. Um, mm. There's a term for it, uh, anosynosia, and that can make it extremely difficult for caregivers in the earlier stages in particular. But a lot of times folks, you know, as they get further along, they have no idea. And that's, you know, it's that's not denial. But sometimes folks in the earlier stages that will think it's denial, but it's really they just can't grasp it. Their brain just doesn't allow yeah. them to to understand and believe it. Is it more normal for those suffering from this to actually be high on the communication? Like, this is really scary. I hate the fact that I didn't know who you were the other day, but now I know who you are. Like, is it something that a lot of them communicate and express? It's kind of hard to say, honestly. I mean, yeah. I definitely do have some folks that I work with who are in denial or are fighting it, so to speak, um, you know, because they don't want to lose the keys. They don't want to lose their independence. They don't want to become um, reliant on someone else. And then there are some folks who um, I think never really know it. In a lot of cases, I think that folks get it. They retreat. They don't go out as much or they're not socializing, things like that, because they don't want anyone to know how conscious a decision that is. I, it's hard for me to say. But there are a lot of folks that I work with who who know, who get it, who are angry, who are scared, who are, you know, laughing at it um, or or talking with one another and and learning how to cope with it. Yeah. Lynn, do you like the notebook? I think we already talked about this. I do like the notebook. Yeah. Jeff? Yeah. You don't like it? I don't know what you're talking about. The movie, so, The Notebook. No, I've never seen it. You've never <gasps> seen The no. Notebook? No, I've never seen it. Who are you married to? About. I'm not at all shocked. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see, so there's confirmation. Wow. It's a chick- oh, that's why. <laughs> oh, total chick flick. <laughs> see, but I, I think it's a good movie. Like, my bragging mm-hmm. right up until about a year and a half ago was I had never seen Top Gun. Uh, seen that, that just stopped people in there. Like, Top Gun, are you kidding me? But then I had to watch Top Gun to see Maverick. Okay. So. Mm-hmm. So, so are you saying I need to watch The Notebook? Oh, it's a good movie. Okay. It's really I, funny, though. His bragging right was he didn't see Top Gun, and he's appalled that you haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> well, more, more because you are a married man. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking, yeah. has Stacy ever seen The Notebook? That's a good question. I have no idea. <laughs> it's a really well-done movie. Is 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 the portrayal accurate as they're older? The husband is just wanting those those small short moments. And so he's telling the story and then she snaps out of it for a second and they hug and kiss and cry and embrace. Like, is can that sort of thing happen? I think that is a highly romanticized version. <laughs> Get of, out of here. <laughs> right? Really? Yeah, shocker. And this total chick flick <laughs> that they've romanticized this, this movie. Rachel McAdams, a liar. All right. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, there there can sometimes be moments of, of clarity in the late, late stages. It's really fascinating to me that it's referred to as a terminal lucidity, um, where people say it's this, this little bit of cognitive reserve, this little moment right before someone passes or in the days before they pass that, that they might be a little more cognizant. Do I think that's normal or do I think that people... Sh- should watch that movie and get this hope <laughs> and learn. Yeah, no. Yeah. No. I, texted, I wish it was. I texted Stacy. She has seen it. And my follow-up question was, did you like it? And she said, I think. I think. So, yeah. <laughs> I think your follow-up <laughs> question should be, who'd you see it with? <laughs> Here we go. Was it girls' excuse, night out? Excuse me for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're all, I'd say, give or take 
five or six years, we're all generally in the same age group. Did y'all do the whole drive in a car during high school and they had it, it, it made you feel like you were drunk. So in other words, the steering wheel didn't respond as quickly. Y'all never did that? No, I've mm-hmm. seen that, but I have not. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and at James on High School, we all got to drive a car that supposedly kind of simulated how it would feel if you were drunk. And it, I, I thought about that because I don't know if there's any way possible for someone who's, who doesn't live in the shoes of dementia or Alzheimer's to, I don't, I don't get it. So when my mama was being moved out of her place where she was kind of governing her own affairs in her own room and and not, you know, 24-7 care sort of thing, when we had to move her to one of those facilities, I asked my mom, I was just like, can I just, can I just bring her home, you know, just, just for a few hours? Because I know she, you know, she's going to be out in Somerville. So she comes over to the house and I fix her uh, like a plate of like little finger foods and everything. And she points to the strawberries and says, can I eat these? Like, I don't, it's so hard for me to make the jump. I, I know these are questions that are probably relatively unanswerable, but does it not look like food? Yeah, I, I really couldn't tell right. you what's going on in her brain at that point. Yeah, um, but let me let me jump in and tell you this story. So a, a really good friend of mine, his his mother passed away of Alzheimer's about three, four years ago. And I asked him, I said, what was a good memory uh, during that time? And she loved Cool Ranch Doritos. Yeah. And the, the best thing for him and his family to watch was for her to fall in love with Doritos over and over again. <laughs> she had no clue. She would just open the bag and she'd taste one. And just the excitement That's of the her. Best. I know. That's and Sue so said that was just an awesome experience for them yeah. as she, she str- struggled with that disease. That reminds mm-hmm. me of Drew Barrymore, Adam Sandler, yeah. 51st yeah. Dates. Oh, yeah. Now I did see that movie. Right. Yeah. You did see that I one. I did see that one. I remember 10 Second Tom? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, man. Like, do you find that in your interaction with this, is there, does there have to be a balance of mourning and and grief over what these people are going through, but then also trying to keep it lighthearted? Like, what could it have been offensive that we just laughed about 10 Second Tom on 51st Dates? Everything could be offensive to somebody. No, I don't think there's any balance in the emotion necessarily. Um, I think if you can't find laughter in it, I mean, you're, I think if you can't find humor in moments, then that's going to be an even more difficult journey. Um, You know, you're not laughing at someone, you're laughing at a situation and at something that they might have laughed at previously. And sometimes you got to just laugh to keep from crying. I mean, it's a devastating disease. They don't call it the long goodbye for nothing. Right. Even as you're watching caregivers, because I think about my grandma who just cared for my granny for so long. And it was just, you know, like we would go down there, but every day, day in, day out, it was just her and my granny. As my grandmother got older and after my granny passed and she was living by herself, starting to wonder like what toll that took on her mentally. Uh Um, And if... Like some of the things that she would forget or she would say something at dinner that we were like, what is she saying? If that if that was her brain doing that anyway as she was aging or was she triggered by like the years and years of care of my granny? Yeah. You would just have the same conversation, the same 15 minutes on loop all day long. And so. Yeah. Well, I mean, caregivers. I can't imagine. I mean, I hear stories every day and I talk to people every day, but at the same time, I know I can't understand because we haven't walked in their shoes. But it is, dementia is, there is such an incredible toll that it takes on caregivers from an emotional, physical, spiritual, financial, 
you know, every aspect of their lives. They don't make time to go to the doctor themselves or to do just basic maintenance. A lady told me the other day, she's like, I didn't go to the dentist for three years and I had no idea. Mm. People, they're, they're not sleeping well. There's a whole range of um, studies that have been done about the the toll it takes on caregivers. Most of them are depressed to some extent. Um, and there's a significant portion who pass away before their loved ones with dementia, oh. mm. um, which I've seen. I mean, that's one of the things that I talk to families about is, is you got to prepare and, and kind of plan for plan B um, because it does happen. It's hard for folks to get away. It's hard for them to take care of themselves. So often I hear that they just kind of get trapped in this cycle of just the, the waking up every day and, and just trying to get through it minute by minute. Yeah. That's, that, that is one thing that, you know, when Sarah and I first met, just hearing the, you know, what their nonprofit does is, yes, it helps the folks that are, that are struggling with the disease, but they also comes alongside of these caregivers and provides care or just a break so that they mm -hmm. can go to the dentist or get a haircut or things like that. And it is so important because oftentimes we find that they're trying to run their own family, trying to work their own job. And now they're full-time care for mm -hmm. somebody that needs to be observed. Talk a little bit about that, what, what you do for caregivers. Uh, what we're known for and what it's in our name, what we started doing initially was respite care. Um, it came about actually through several churches years ago who started offering a program just to give caregivers a little bit of a break, just a few hours at a time so that they could know that their loved ones were safe um, and they could take a little bit of time on their own. So today we offer a program twice a week at four different locations, and they're just small groups where you can drop off your loved one um, and know that they're going to be safe while you go and do whatever it is that you want. I mean, I've had folks you know, some go to the doctor, some go grocery shopping. We had one lady who would just sit in her car and read. And, you know, mm. it's whatever they need, but it just gives them an, an opportunity to take care of themselves. Uh, it's not enough, honestly, but it's it's something and it's affordable. I think a lot of folks don't know how expensive like companion care is. Uh, so to have somebody come in your home and watch your loved one is awesome. But in most cases, I think the average around Charleston is about $30 an hour with a four-hour minimum. And a lot of places are looking for at least one day, if not two days a week, which is really, really tough on a lot of families. So we do it for a lot less. Um, and we offer scholarships so that money is never going to keep somebody away. Mm. That's that's our board's philosophy. And that's my personal commitment as long as they're, we're working there. We're not yeah. going to turn anybody away. But what's really cool is that the program, it's not just benefiting caregivers for a lot of folks. It's their social life. It is all that they have, and they look forward to it. And they don't necessarily want to come at first, but will quickly adapt. We have one gentleman who is a retired pastor, and his wife agonized over bringing him to the group for ages. And we finally decided, you know, try to think about the best way to get him to come um, because no adult thinks they need a babysitter, of course. So we just refer to it as like a seniors club or, or something along those lines. So we ask him to come and, and volunteer with us and to just bless it, the meal each day. Now she's, he wakes up and she said the biggest challenge is when he wakes up and he gets dressed because he's ready to go to the club. And we're not open that day. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't remember the last time he he prayed over the meal for us, but it doesn't matter because he's there, he's safe, he's happy, mm -hmm. he's got friends, and, and his wife is getting a little bit of time, which mm -hmm. is pretty awesome. That sounds like that's what you're talking about as far as that in-between time, because mm -hmm. at some point, would, that, would what you guys do be of no benefit 
to the people emotionally, the the sufferer. And and I'll give you an example. So my mom regularly visited her mom, even when her mom had no idea who my mom was. Mm-hmm. You know, I talked to my mom about this and, and she would say, I'm doing this more for me because it's my yeah. mom and I love her and I miss her. Given that her mom didn't know who she was, was there any benefit to my mama to be visited by her older daughter when she's more familiar with the people who work at the home? Like, is there any um, emotional benefit or this just a complete disconnect? Again, it's hard to say. Yeah. I, I think if it was helpful for your your mom, then that's good enough. Sure. You know, a lot of times folks will, will go visit and the truth is they just don't remember it. You say she doesn't know who she is. Maybe she doesn't know her name or her exact relationship, but I truly believe that she... They know how we make them feel, and uh, that's a good feeling. And, you know, if somebody comes and they're, they're your person, you know that you're safe with them. You know that, that they make you happy. There are some cases where folks will be kind of triggering and they'll get upset, and so you might want to visit a little bit less often, but it, it just varies from person to person. I've had some folks say to me, you know, how often am I supposed to go? It's like, there, there's no answer to that. Yeah. One of the sweetest things that I I'd seen um, in in a hospice visit, the lady that was had the disease had been unconscious. She was in you know probably days away from passing on. And there's a point to why I'm I'm bringing up the story because I know you guys do this a lot and um, it's it's really kind of cool. She was, had been unconscious for four days, hadn't moved, hadn't talked, eyes closed. Pastor that I was with started to sing an old hymn, mm. and as he got one verse in. All of a sudden, her mouth just started moving, knew every single word of yeah. that old hymn. Yeah. And I know you do a lot with music and, and things That's like that. Incredible. That just helps them. Rem- I mean, they, they, they know old Bible verses. They know old hymns. They yeah. know scripture. It is so cool, music especially. Um, you know, the music engages many more parts of our brain than some activities do. Um yeah, I've seen it many times where somebody will be nonverbal and yet can sing along to a yeah. song. I remember when my grandmother was in her final days in very similar situation. She's laid in bed. She's not talking. And my little niece, who was about three at the time, um, climbed up in the bed beside her and started singing, Shall We Gather at the River? And Grandma started singing, too. Mm. It was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. It was just crazy. But yeah, it's it's really cool how they can still remember music. I've got a woman who um, comes to one of our programs. She's she's just a fascinating individual, and she's had dementia for probably 15, 16 years. And she can still come, and she plays the piano and sings to us. And afterwards, I can, you know, two minutes later, Miss Mary, thank you for coming and sharing your gift with us today. It was so beautiful. Oh, did I play for y'all? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I hope I did okay. She has no idea. Yeah. Mm. Um, and yet she's playing. And as she does, she's telling us why well, to play this for my seventh grade recital. And then wow. she blinks and it's like she's just forgotten. Gosh. It's it's wild. It's wild. But yeah, they... the. Love the music, um, and and what's really cool is how it can be used to influence their moods. How it can can be very soothing at times. Even there's there's some cases where uh, people will get the, the Alzheimer's shuffle, where they're just not lifting their feet or they're not walking at the same pace. Um, Parkinsonian dementia or some other types that come with that. Um, and you can play music, and they'll move to the rhythm, and they're more steady on their feet. Wow. Um, yeah, and I just, I just love that you guys create a space for that, that yeah. to happen because often if, if you guys weren't, you know, like uh, nonprofits around, that's yeah. that's not a good scenario. And yeah. for you guys to create a space for that is awesome. Is there anything else that you see that does that like music does? Oh, no. Nothing? 
No, nothing, nothing quite like that. Mm. Um, I have seen, in some cases, babies will, mm. will make a huge difference. Mm. There was one gentleman who uh, came to our program for a while. He had Lewy body dementia, which is a pretty tough disease, and it can cause a lot of hallucinations. It can cause a lot of aggression. Um, can be pretty scary. And I had, a, when my grand, granddaughter was maybe six months old, she came with me to, to work for a few hours, and he was fascinated. And he fussed over her. And I mean, he's this big, you know, bulky construction guy, you know, and he just doted over her. And I even let him hold her, and he just would not stop. He was very anxious, he had a lot of stress, and he was just fidgety all the time. And yet, when he held her, it was like wow. everything melted away. Mm. Gosh. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. That is cool. Sarah, when we first met, she asked me the question, how many people in your campus are afflicted with this or are a caregiver for that? And I'm embarrassed to say I did not know the answer to that question. But you think, you know, Seacoast, I don't know how many thousands of people you know, physically worship at one of our campuses mm -hmm. with the statistic that you shared with us earlier, it really bothered me that I didn't know the answer to that question and that what services were available. Yeah. And so the reason, one of the reasons I wanted to, you know, see if we could get you on this podcast is just to raise awareness around that. Because yeah. if you're newly, you know, faced with this and a family member or caregiver, you're being a caregiver for this, it's so helpful to know that there are people out there, there's programs like this to help other people. Yeah. We, I hear a lot from folks that I got the diagnosis and then the doctor left and now I don't know what to do. Right. Um, then it's get on Google and try to figure it out. Yes. And oh my goodness, it's so depressing on Google and you'll hear all these worst case scenarios and it's just so much. And so a lot of times folks will call and we can kind of walk them through and help them, you know, eat the proverbial elephant just mm. one bite at a time. Um, from helping them understand what are some legal safeguards, what are financial safeguards, you know, how do you keep your loved one safe? How do you know when it's time for them to stop driving? A lot of things like that. And even just how to talk to someone with dementia. I mean, it's it's counterintuitive in so many ways. But when you realize somebody, they're not functioning based on logic necessarily. You know, so how do we adapt how we interact with someone you've been married to for 60 years or, mm -hmm. you know, your mother who you've talked to your whole life for how do you change that? So that's one of the things I love. And and whether it's in a support group or it's just individual one-on-one, um, -on -one, we're able to to kind of walk families through um, a lot of that journey. Yeah, I uh, just thought of this. A blessing that came out of my mom has dementia is she lost her oldest son and had no awareness wow. of it. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking yeah. how heart-wrenching it would have been for a mom to lose a child. Yeah. And she just, right, she didn't have to suffer that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, that's a... Well, I'll tell you one thing that we, we talk about is, um, well, okay, so I'll give you an example. My um, When my grandmother passed away, my great-aunt Rose had um, dementia and she was pretty advanced. And so she's at my grandmother's house and she's, well, where's Deba? Asking about my grandmother. And somebody said, well, you know, she's gone on to be with Jesus now. And she got so upset. And 10 minutes later, well, where's Deba? Oh, well, she's gone to be with Jesus. And, you know, and, and it was a fresh loss for her mm -hmm. over and over again. And so, you know, you start, we, we've learned to employ some people call it therapeutic lying. I like to call it fiblets. Um, fiblets. But they're, yeah, they're, they're little lies that do no harm, but they bring comfort and, and security to the person with dementia. Mm. And so you say, she's not here right now, but you'll see her later. 
Well, maybe that's not a lie either, um, first of all. Right. But, yeah. but, you know, it's the gentler way to to make them, to save them the torture yeah. of, of repeatedly hearing that and to just make them feel okay. So are you guys all encompassing as far as therefore the sufferer, the family who's suffering, just to come here and... We'll see how we can help. Yeah, we'll do our best to help in any way. I mean, we're not doctors or pharmacists or neurologists. Um, so, I mean, I'm not going to offer medical advice or anything like that, but I can share, you know, how do you choose a good doctor? Or how do you how do you communicate with the physicians or what's normal and what's not? I think that's more often the case. You know, I mean, unfortunately, we don't have enough doctors that are skilled in, in dementia care and they don't have enough time to sit down and to talk through everything. Um, so we try to kind of fill that gap, um, offering them like practical knowledge or practical information, doing sometimes coaching even on, you know, role-playing scenarios of how to talk to somebody, things that there's just no other source for. Yeah. Um, and you have a whole host of support groups and things like that that people yeah. can attend and get more information. And Yeah. We offer right now 10 support groups a month, we speak at a lot of senior centers and things like that, um, trying to provide information. Uh, just letting people know that that we're here and they're not alone in it. That's pretty powerful. I think folks just feel so overwhelmed and to to see other people who are going through it um, can make a big difference. Uh, so day programs, support groups. There are some folks who are just not group people and that's okay. We'll do one-on-one with them. Um, we've put together a bunch of little guides of tips and tricks to how do you keep your loved one from wandering away from home mm-hmm. or how do you, you know, put in safeguards to if they do wander away to make sure that they're okay and that they're um, easy to identify, things like that. If you want to travel, how do you do that safely? Yeah. Um, lots of little things. I remember our first meeting, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I, you know, heard her story and I was just like, whatever you want, like I'll open the doors of church, <laughs> you can do whatever you want. And I'm, I'm hoping someday we get to, we get to partake in that. But yes. I was thinking, you know, you know, Seacoast, obviously my wife and I started attending Seacoast in 2004 on staff now since 2009. And I just know the culture and the DNA of these folks and, and where I've come from being a less compassionate person to a compassionate person. And I just wonder how many people in our congregation that are listening to this that want to come alongside you, like how, you know, how can they go about doing that? And Pick up the phone. Okay. Call us. I mean, we're a small enough organization yeah. to where you, you call our office line, I'm going to answer. Yeah, there's lots of opportunities to volunteer in different ways. Um, some through our day programs, um, through fundraisers, through uh, other folks who can help facilitate support groups. There's lots of ways that you can be part of this. Chances are it's going to touch all of us yeah. at some point. Yeah. And um, we, we welcome and really appreciate. Now, do you have relationships with any organizations outside of the Charleston area? So even for some of our listeners who maybe are not in the Charleston area, but they're like, is there anything like this around me? Like, where would you direct them on the crazy world of Google? to find something similar to Charleston Respite in their area? I would encourage folks to contact their local area agency on aging, um, which are usually like Charleston's got a, ours is the um, Trident Area Agency on Aging. But most communities have an entity like that that can help them find resources, whether it's you know, day programs or support groups or whatever else they might need. When I was campus pastor of the James Island campus at the time, we we did a lot of outreach at the Savannah House, which is a nursing yeah. home over on James Island. And we really did take the approach of a lot of these people. The blessing that we're giving them is that time and that moment because mm-hmm. they won't remember that we were even there. But it's like that 
that 10 minutes of one-on-one and that, that interaction. But we were Christmas caroling. It was the holidays, so there were people visiting their parents. And there's just people all over the place. And there were probably people from the church who maybe I, they, they you know, people hear Christmas caroling. They're like, oh, I want to help out with that. So probably some people from the church I didn't even recognize. Just tons of people. Well, this, this guy comes up and he, you know, I don't know, mid to late 60s, maybe early 70s. He's just like, hey, man, he's like, uh, are you leaving soon? I was like, yeah, a little bit. He's like, I need to ride home. I was like, Joey. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh, okay. okay, no, no problem. And so he's just kind of like waiting around. He comes up to me, he's just like, when, when you leaving? I was just like, oh, here, here in a bit. So you know, get the family together. I was like, okay, you ready? And we start walking out the door. Somebody that's working there's like, Mr. Johnson, where do you think you're going? I was like, oh, gosh. Uh, uh, that's fantastic. No. Do not give rides. Right. When, yes. you're, when you're in a nursing home. Yeah. That's an important but, but, takeaway. But what I love is in his mind, he's probably thinking, I'm pulling one over yeah. and he's yeah. going to get me to my yeah. old house. Yeah, yeah. You're setting him free. Uh, Here's the thing. There's no cure. There is no cure. There is nothing that is guaranteed to prevent dementia. A lot of folks are terrified of this disease, and so they will um, see every supplement or every app you can download or game you can you know, do with the belief that that's going to keep it away. I would just say buyer beware. Um, you know, the, there are things that you can do to reduce your risk. You know, if it's good for your heart, it's good for your head. Eating better, um, exercising more. Uh, getting adequate sleep, not smoking, taking care of medical conditions, but you know, diabetes or heart disease, things like that. Um, socialization is hugely important, but please don't get caught up in thinking that this pill is going to save my life because it's it's not. And it seems like the very nature of dementia, Alzheimer's, there there's no way to find a cure either because it's it's just the brain getting older, right? Uh, no, it is not okay. a natural part of aging. Okay. I think that's important. Okay. Actually, I'm glad you said that. It's, it's not a natural part of aging. And while um, I think it's one in three adults over age 80 has some form of dementia, two in three don't. Okay. Um, and so that is a very important um, distinction. It's not a natural part of aging. It's not going to happen to everybody. It does happen to a lot of folks, but there are so many different causes of dementia that I think finding it is going to, finding any kind of cure or treatment is going to be extremely difficult. We don't know what causes it always. And so how do we fix it? Yeah. We, we don't know yet. Yeah. So this is my third podcast. Yeah. Food addiction, mental disorder, anxiety and mental health. Yeah. And now dementia. I feel like I'm being typecast here, Joey. I know about other things. You've just found Joey's secret. Uh, Ask T about it. (laughs) Yes. Yes, ask T. All right. Well, thank you both for joining we're, we'll probably call this economics for dummies or economics 101, but I'll ask first, why are you guys qualified? And try not to be so humble, <laughs> but what's your background that gives you some deeper insight? Yes, for me, I'm, you know, I've, I've, I mean, I've been a student of economics for almost 50 years. And then I've been kind of a practitioner, if you will, in, in uh, the economy for giant companies, for mid-sized companies, for small companies, for startups. I've been involved with international businesses. I've been involved with um, politics at the South Carolina government level and um, economic policy there. So I just feel like, I, you know, I've, I've, again, I've spent 50 years trying to understand how all this works and trying to be a practitioner so that my knowledge has some 
practical yeah. component too. So I'll let you introduce Dave Chorba because it was your recommendation. Obviously, I know him from back in the West Campus days, but you recommended him to come on here. And why is that, Jack? Well, so you I, can brag on him. Yes, Dave and I served together on the Seacoast Trustee Board for nine years, I believe. Got to know Dave, I guess maybe a year or two before that. Just have always been impressed with his incisiveness. Dave works for one of the large uh, investment managers and, and has a senior level there. So he's just attuned to thinking in terms of the macro economy. And I've, I've heard him speak before. He's a very good speaker. And, and I just thought he had a lot of a lot of insights. So, um, and I bet you just love this stuff, don't you? I live it every day. You live it every day. <laughs> live it every day. Yeah, we, we take all of the data points that, that are available in the economy and you, you try and maximize the pros and cons of those points and you to create portfolios for investors because ultimately we create products that people utilize to hopefully better their lives and invest for retirement and better foundations and endowments. And this is what we do. I mean, yeah. We wake up every day trying to, to maximize return for investors. And yeah. so uh, we, we utilize all types of economic concepts, both macro and micro, like we were talking about, to hopefully the betterment of investors. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to put y'all on the spot. I sent you guys a framework of how I thought this conversation could go. And then you guys kick back some recommendations on some other things or, or maybe some changes. On a scale of one to 10, 10 would be absolute brilliance in economics and zero would be like a newborn baby. Where would you think that I am on my knowledge of economics? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm serious. Uh, five. Five. I think that's kind of generous. Well, I, when I, I'm gauging it more based on if I said, you know, here, here are a hundred people with college educations, and 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 they're randomly re- reflect the range of economic knowledge in the you know general population for educated people. Where would Joey be? I guess you'd be in the middle. Gotcha. So kind of normal. Yeah. Yeah. Bef- I guess before we proceed, let's let's cover some basics and some groundwork. David, you already mentioned macro and micro. Why don't we why don't we go ahead and lay that out? What's the difference? What are you talking about when you say macro and micro? Sure. Self-explanatory, obviously, but the the macroeconomics are really just the kind of the study of the the, the major uh, forces that that drive large economies. So kind of think countries, right? Think country-driven types of scale. Whereas microeconomics would be what, what's the interplay in Charleston. Right. What are the things that affect a local economy, local businesses? And th- of course, there's overlap and interplay between the two, but that's kind of a fun, a, a simple way to think of it. All right. Well, I'm curious about just how economics works in general, including what in the heck the Federal Reserve is, because the Federal Reserve is not a part of our government. Kind of yes and kind of no. I mean, I would say it technically it is a private entity, but when you have something that's appointed by the president, the, the, the leadership is appointed by the president. I mean, gotcha. I would say our government has certainly an influence on it and it performs a service for the government, for the people, but it's it, it's set up the way it is to assure its independence so that it can focus on what its task is and theoretically not be driven by the politics at the moment. What is its task? So the Federal Reserve has what's called a dual mandate. I think that in itself is a big mistake, but historically its role was to maintain the stability of the currency. That's and it. Just maintain the what of the currency? The stability. stability. Does that mean the worth? Worth is, is certainly one of the key factors there, yes. Gotcha. But, you know, in other words, stable value. So so the idea is make sure that you don't have inflationary spirals, for example, right. or deflationary spirals. And I've heard that all of our money is backed by gold. Is, no. It's not. Was it not, ever? Yes. It until used to be. 1970? Nixon, Bretton Woods. Yeah. 
why did it used to be backed by gold and then after 1970 it wasn't? Well, but the thing is, to get people to accept paper, you had to say, oh, this is actually real money. And paper money was kind of like not a thing in terms of something being issued by governments until, you know, for like for the United States, it was like the Greenback Act that was passed during the Civil War. Uh, and Lincoln made the famous comment, quote from the Book of Acts, that when he signed that silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to thee. But yeah, so gold was always the the thing, gold or other precious metals were always the things that backed currency until fairly recently. And I'm not arguing that we should go back to that, but the idea was that was a guarantee of a stable value. You could exchange it at any time for its value in gold. Yeah. So basically, the only reason why... A $50 bill is worth $50 is because we all agree on it. Like as citizens, we're like, well, I, I agree. I'll take that because it's worth $50. I mean, is that what it comes down to? We just agree? Well, yeah, but, but and, and, and we agree, though, because everybody else is doing it. And because there's this system that all works on a with that $50 being a pretty stable number across different commodities and so on. Yeah, I think there's one component that people will relate to immediately is is the Federal Reserve also... Board of Governors set the most important price out there, and that's the cost of money. That's interest rates. They drive everything. The cost of money drives everything inside an economy, and that's a very important component. And it's something people can relate to now. They're yeah. paying more for mortgages. They're getting, but they're getting more yield on their CDs now. So that that interplay of interest rates and what that does, the economy is, is pretty important. So when interest rates go up or down, it's the Federal Reserve that are making those decisions. Well, they're setting the baseline rates for the economy. And other things fluctuate generally in in relation to those baseline rates. But like the rate that they've been working on lately is the overnight borrowing rate. And so everything kind of flows from there in terms of things that are longer periods of time and higher degrees of risk. So are there like some algorithms that we adhere to or is it someone that literally sends an email and says, hey, the interest rates are now going to be such and such? Well, the Fed meets every so many weeks and they announce at the end of the meeting what the new overnight rate is going to be. And they announce it within a range. Dang. Is that a good system? They have, I mean, we're talking about uh, economics today, and they have an army of economists that take a survey on anything you can imagine in the economy, try and gauge economic impact, trying to measure inflation. And so this team of economists tries to educate this board of governors as best they can to help, uh, to, to Jack's point earlier, to try and do two things, right? Try and maximize employment, and number two, try and keep inflation at a, right around a 2%. Uh, mark, right? That's kind of the long-term uh, goal uh, of trying to keep, I don't know if 2% is the right number, the wrong number. I would argue zero is the right number, but uh, yeah. you know, we could talk about that another day. But it, it, it is that they, this called the beige book, right? You might've heard it termed a beige book of economics, but that is what the uh, empowers the, the um, their decisions behind the, the, the cost of money and overnight lending. So inflation, is there a general inflation that affects everything or do you have inflation in gas prices, inflation and grocery store yes and yes yeah <laughs> so so at any point in time you can have prices going up for some commodity for reasons that are particular to that commodity so you know gas prices bounce around based on what's happening in the middle east based around what's happening in terms of u.s regulations for further drilling and and so on but in general, like the, the argument that monetarist economists, economists have always made is that is that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That's a Milton Friedman statement that is often quoted. And his argument was that inflation per se happens because the, the, the quantity of money is increasing faster than the quantity of stuff. 
And so if if the price of something is the amount of money out there divided by the amount of stuff, then the price is going to go up if mm. there's more money. You had mentioned right the stimulus checks earlier. Very, again, very simple illustration, but to Jack's point, if you have too much money chasing too few goods, right? The example is we each have $5 right now, right? And there's something that all of us want right now, and it's on the table. There's only one of them, right? We're all going to compete by paying uh, a higher and higher and higher price to buy yeah. that one thing that we want. And that's how it happens, right? So you saw that influx of stimulus checks, right? That's the goal is to try and stimulate economic economy. But if you do too much of that, right, you can get this inflationary impact that that is highly correlated to, to some of the stimulus that's that's taking place. What's the relationship between inflation and the Great Depression in the 30s and then inflation back in 2008? Well, there wasn't, I mean, well, in the 1930s, you had deflation. You had prices going down year after year because there was less and less demand, less and less money, fewer and fewer people employed. At one point, the unemployment rate was 25% in the 1930s. Is that the lowest it's ever been or the the highest it's ever been? Yeah. 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 You know, like in recorded U.S. history anyway. But, you know, it's interesting. So here's a, here's a question. I don't know if you know the answer to this, Dave. I said, what is the longest period of time that investment assets, publicly traded securities, had a zero real return? In other words, a zero return after inflation. Do you know what that period of time is? 1966 to 1982. Not the Great Depression. Not any time related to the you know, the dot-com crash or the, or the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. But it also, what it also kind of shows is those were years where, where inflation was going crazy. And, you know, it, it just kind of shows the economic damage that inflation does. And so, you know, where that came to an end was when Reagan came into office, empowered Paul, Vol- Paul Volcker to break the back of inflation by raising interest rates until the economy slowed down enough that inflation started to come down. Gotcha. They call heart disease a silent killer. Inflation is the other silent killer because yeah. the value of your dollar decreases over time. Yeah. And and uh, there have been there's been periods of hyperinflation in world history. Right. The Weimar Republic is one of them in Germany after the World War Two, where people were taking wheelbarrows full of money to buy a loaf of bread. More recently, Argentina is a great example. Venezuela is another example, right? Where you, if you have profligate spending, you have irresponsible policy making. You have a regulatory environment that is just run by, well, criminals. You don't create a, a stable economy. You don't create confidence, right, in leadership. And uh, you, you get a side economy that takes place. And it's a barter. It becomes a barter economy at that point. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's, it's important to note that this is the kind of stuff that it, you need to pay attention to it. And you need to protect it. And you need to work at it. And it, Collectively? It, as collecti- collectively. Like that. We, we need to have an agreement that this, is, that this matters and it makes sense. Because if you get too, um, if you ignore, right, if we ignore this and just think, oh, we can just spend and we can just print money and we can just print as much as we want. That's not the case, right? That's not the case. Um, it, it, everything happens slowly. They say, how do you get bankrupt? Very slowly and then overnight. Uh, and it's something that we should all be aware of from, yeah. from a spending standpoint. So let, let's get into that a little bit more. I, I will go ahead and just put myself out there because this will be the dumbest question you guys have ever heard. But why can't we go to the leaders of other countries and say, hey, we owe you guys a couple of trillion dollars or whatever, Uh it's on us. Just come over here. You can have as much stuff as you want. You know, we're going to give you almost like a gift card. Like, take your trillion dollar gift card. We'll give you stuff. But I mean, I'm not sure how. <laughs> I'm not sure how that changes anything. Well, it, it it gets us out of debt to that country. 
Well, it kind of doesn't. It's just it just turns one form of debt into a different form of debt. Now, you know, one of the things I where I thought you were going with that was, you know, some currencies you can't just go like you can exchange dollars for euros. There's a market rate out there. It's always up to the second, and at any point in time, you can change all the dollars into all the euros that you want, or vice versa. But you can't do that with some currencies, like you can't do that with the Chinese yuan. So some currencies have always had this lack of convertibility, and it's kind of like the they do it imagining that they're protecting their economy. Really what happens is it just it has destructive effects. So I, I spent time in Russia when the ruble was not convertible. So what happened was there, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a saying, it's called Gresham's Law, that bad money drives out good. And what happens then is people, if they get their hands on dollars, they hoard them. The rubles, like they'll give them away. Like there's the two different prices in the marketplace. I mean, any way that you think to structure that, Joey, makes it, you know, you can make it worse, you can make it harder, but it doesn't really solve the basic issue. So what, when we pay back a country, what are we paying back Well, we're not paying back, back a country necessarily. We're paying back individuals in other countries and we're paying back ourselves. The biggest share of U.S. debt is held by U.S. citizens. I own some government bonds in my retirement accounts. So I'm lending money to the treasury. And, you know, if I've got a treasury note that's paying 5% interest and matures in five years, then if I paid $20,000 for that note, I collect my interest. And then at the end of five years, I get my $20,000 back. Is is there a way out of debt? Here's something to think about. You hear sometimes like, well, we've got to pay it back someday, right? Well, an individual note you do, but you can borrow from somebody else to pay it back if somebody else will lend to you. But here's the thing that's different. If it's you or me, we've got to pay the any debt that we have, we've got to pay back at some point, right? Because we have a lifespan. And like, I'm in my late 60s. How many more years am I going to work? Anybody lending money is going to be thinking about how much more earning power does this guy have? And when he stops earning, does he have, does he have the assets to cover what I'm lending? Yeah. But a, but a country doesn't have a lifespan in that sense. You know, you're not coming to an end. You can continue to carry debt for a period of time. The question is, how heavy is the debt you're carrying? And, and, and that debt... The, the U.S. debt has felt light for a, while, for a while because interest rates were so low. If I'm borrowing a trillion dollars, but I'm paying zero interest, then you know, it feels good, right? It feels like this was easy. But now interest rates are 5%. And, you know, that trillion dollars is going to cost you $50 billion a year in interest. So here's a number from the upcoming budget, okay? The United States is going to have to pay about $700 billion in interest payments next year, more than we're going to pay for national defense. Golly. Here's another way to look at that. You, you have four children, right? You and Priscilla. So six of you, your family's share of federal interest payments next year is $12,600. So through taxes, that's how they'll get it? Yeah. Golly. Yeah. When you, have, when you have debt, when a country has debt, three, three things you can do with it, right? You can pay it off, which is the right thing to do because you might create an obligation, right, in exchange. Number two, you can default on it. Right, we've seen people historically default on debt. They just say, "I'm not going to pay you." By the way, that's one way that that's one way uh, or reason how wars get started. <laughs> and number three, and this is what central banks generally have done historically speaking, they can create inflation to try and inflate away so the dollars that I'm paying 20 years from now are worth less than the dollars that are worth today. So, is there purposeful inflation from a central bank standpoint? There actually is. Right, it actually goes to impact the overall effect of the of the debt on the country. So it's something to kind of take into consideration when you think about right our spending uh, to, to Jack's point earlier. So 
our national debt just crossed over $33 trillion, um, Which is just a staggering number that I don't think people, a lot of people don't slow down and think about. Well, here, like, here. It's a thousand billion is one trillion, right? Well, so, so, tw- so you know what a million seconds is? Right. A million seconds is 12 days. 12 days. Okay. Uh, I can't wait to hear. <laughs> a billion seconds is 32 years. Oh, my gosh. A trillion seconds is 32,000 years. Oh, my gosh. Well, here's the other way to look at it, 33 trillion. So the total value of mortgages outstanding in the country is 12 trillion. Total value of credit card tra- debt, which people think is a bit, is 1 trillion. Total private debt, businesses, nonprofits, households, is about $20 trillion. So the federal government has borrowed a multiple of what everybody else combined has borrowed. And until fairly recently, that wasn't the case. So I, I don't even understand what it looks like for our country to borrow. Who are we borrowing from and what does it look like? Well, and here's, one of the, here's kind of one of the really dangerous games, okay? Well, like one of the things that's happened with the tremendous explosion in debt is it's been the federal government borrowing from the Federal Reserve. In other words, just like, it's just like this shell game. It's, you know, they issue a bond to, they have a bond issue to raise, you know, $10 billion to cover obligations this week, and the Federal Reserve buys it. And they print the money to, you know, it's... So the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has grown from $1 trillion to $8 trillion since the recession of 2008-2009. And that's, again, like, you can't replicate that. I, I feel like part of why, you know, you can look at it and say, well, why is this a problem? It hasn't been a problem. It's like, yes, man, we've we've played out the things to keep it from being felt, like, as long as we can. And I, I think this is what you're seeing with interest rates this year. And there aren't any more places to hide. It's it's facing reality time is what we're all and, and what is the worst case scenario? Well, I don't, I, you know. It just squeezes out other things. To Jack's point, you can't now. Everything we funded historically because our the, to service our debt, the interest rates that we're paying now, it's going to say we have to now start to prioritize the things that are important to the country. What matters to us? More, more battleships or more schools? Like, and you start, and this is this is where healthcare, right? It's like you see in countries that you start seeing rationing of healthcare. You start the, this is eventually when a country starts to ha- have making serious decisions around prioritization. That's what happens, right? From from a debt standpoint, because you eventually get to the point where you just can't. There, you just there's just not enough to, to to go around and pay it all. And and that's we're not there yet. But here's a cliff that's approaching. You know the the Social Security trust fund is running out of money. So they're going to cross over. I think the current estimate is in 2032. There won't be enough to pay Social Security benefits. Gosh. What are they going to do? I mean, they're either going to cut Social Security payments radically, and the estimate is by about about a third, or they'll fund that out of the out of the general obligations of the government. Well, here's another, you know, trillions of dollars laid on top of, you know, now now what? And to Dave's point, it's like the trade-offs are going to get tougher and tougher and tougher. And, and there, there's some, the likelihood is that there's some real economic pain coming. Now, the good news is you can always make adjustments and start working back the other direction. But I think it's going to be a long, hard, painful road. Printing, printing more money. If we're in debt to other countries, why can't we print more money? Well, that's kind of what we have been doing. But again, the other countries aren't dumb, right? If you're printing more money, like they're going to say, okay, well, that's fine. So the dollar is going to be worth less a year from now than it is today. So that just means you got to pay me more interest because I'm not lending you money in order to lose. 
mean, you can't game it. That's the thing. Ultimately, it's like the the numbers are what they are, and you've got to you got to pay what the market requires. Yeah, there, there is this logic around why can't we just have the government kind of like intervene and 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 make sure that the right things are done? And it's like be like trying to say let's have the government manage the weather tomorrow. I mean, it's just so complex. It's beyond the capacity of a limited group of people to do it. And markets seem very inefficient because they're they're wild and they fluctuate all over the place, but. What is happening is literally, you know, hundreds of millions of people in real time are making constant adjustments as they go through their days. That information flow from those constant adjustments is what enables the system to work. So it's always kind of striving for an equilibrium. And if instead you try to impose that from the outside, A, you can never have enough information. It's too complex. B, you will likely be guided by other considerations than what is best or the people involved. How did, I mean, it's, you look at so many different things made in China, made in China, Mm -hmm. made in China. How did China pull that off? So basically they just made things cheaper and then our companies were like, well, let's buy from China because it's cheaper. This, that's the simplest answer, Joey. That's absolutely, the, that's the kindergarten answer. That's well, it is. Well, it's sometimes it's Occam's razor, right? The simplest answer is probably the right one. Um, the the pricing imbalance got so skewed historically speaking, where the cost to this is such a it's such a good question actually because it brings in so many of these key things. Jack, you were talking about a regulatory environment. Mm-hmm. It costs a company X amount of dollars, right, in raw materials production staffing, employees, benefits, salaries, all that kind of stuff. It costs, say, $8 to make a widget, right, in in the U.S. Let's say in China, it costs 50 cents to make that widget. Okay, well, I still got to get the material. So it it was cost. So U.S. companies, it's still, they could still make money by shipping all the materials over to China, paying for that, paying for the labor and construction costs, and shipping it back to to, to the U.S., it still cost them, say, $6 versus $8 here. So that's where you saw this massive offshoring of manufacturing that took place with cheap, 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 cheap labor in China. Now, what's interesting, China's economy has grown significantly, right? They're starting to establish a middle class. The cost of manufacturing in China is not near as cheap as it's been. So what's happening in China? Well, they're losing to Vietnam now, right? So you're seeing more stuff being manufactured in Vietnam. And number two, what's been pretty pretty fun to see in this country is we're actually onshoring. We're bringing manufacturing back to this country in many higher end. You know, when you think about tech, right, you think about pharmaceutical, um, those are two key areas that, that we actually are leading the world from a manufacturing standpoint. Yeah. But the, again, this is economics 101. And the harder we make it, the more expensive we make it inside this country to do stuff here. Well, companies running a company trying to just be profitable will find other markets to do what they need They need to get done. That's that's how the world, the global markets have, have worked. And China thought they were going to be the world's factory forever. And guess what? They're not. Right yeah. they're now they need to kind of figure out what their next phase is going to look like, and they're they're trying to figure out what their next phase looks like. Quite honestly, what's funny? There are very few ships that carry the U.S. flag. The reason is that the United States has all kinds of regulatory requirements for a ship carrying the U.S. flag that multiply, literally multiply, the operating cost for a vessel. So nobody carries a U.S. flag. And, you know, it's like somebody's going to bring the, you know, goods from overseas on somebody's ship. It's just not going to be one of ours because we've made it cost prohibitive. I think what Dave is referring to, like in the manufacturing, shipping is a fairly small industry when you look at the number of people it employs. But when you look at manufacturing, you say, people starting to realize, wait a minute, we can't, we can't impose rules on our companies that nobody else in the world is following and expect them to be competitive. We've got to make some changes. Yeah. Is our debt typical? 
around the world? Like are for developed countries, as a, the way that you gauge that normally is as a percentage of gross domestic product, as a percentage of the size of your economy. And ours is ours is roughly mid pack in terms of the developed economies. So, tons of countries that are developed are in debt. Mm-hmm. Are there any? Countries that are not in debt, like Norway or something? No, it's a good, I have no idea what Norway's debt situation is, but I'll, do you know what the most highly indebted country in the world is? Mm, I want to just take a wild guess. Um, Italy. No. Do you know? Greece. Japan. Really? Yeah. I think their uh, I their think... ratio of, of debt to gross domestic product is almost double ours. It's almost $2 for every dollar yeah. in the in gross domestic wow. product. Part of that related to shrinking population. Very old population, very few children. Yeah. And what's interesting about Japan, to your point, how how have they been able to do that forever? And it hasn't been, quote unquote, it hasn't broken yet. All the debt's internally funded. It's the Japanese that own all of the, the Japanese debt. So they're, they're kind of all in it together. Whereas being beholden to Europe and other countries that would hold their debt. So they, they have a quite a unique situation in Japan being... Yeah, they being do. Well, and, ex- and, and, and again, which relates to extraordinarily high savings rates. Yep. And a very Super high savings Absolutely, 100%. The demographic thing, that's another economic concept that could probably demand a whole other show. But they sold more Depends in Japan last year than diapers. The country is dying out, right? Yeah. We're close. That's insane. We're close in this country, that's right? A, that's an actual right. stat? Yes. That's more a, Depends? That's wow. an actual statistic, yeah. <laughs> and so you need you need bodies. You need people. You need people to contribute. You, you need a growing population to sustain and maintain an economy. And if you have a country that's getting top-heavy, like many European countries are, fewer and fewer workers contributing to the plan, contributing to right the, the fabric, the social fabric net that's been created, you start to run into some serious headwinds, right? So to, not to touch on a ridiculously hot topic, but right, our immigration policies. I, I don't know if you disagree. Like, I would, like, we need more people in this country. I agree. Now, they need to come legally, but we need more and more people in this country to contribute. Right to contribute to the, there used to be twelve contributors for every retiree in this country. It's now less than three to one. What? Yes, hundred yeah. percent. And this is this is demographics, and this is yeah. The, you know, this is this is what happens when bad ideas take hold. Is when they talk about we're going to exhaust the world's resources in by by nineteen seventy three. So we need to have you know, people can't have kids anymore. No, that's nonsense, right? Product technology and productivity gains always take place because human because human creativity wins and works. Uh, but but yeah, this is these are real real items and countries you're going to start to see having significant headwinds if they don't change their demographic situation. Yeah, and and you know that that twelve one to the three to one ratio, you know, part of it is families having fewer children. Part of it is the wonderful thing about people living longer. It's not a bad thing, but it creates a different kind of challenge than we're used to facing. And so you got to adapt to the challenge that you have, not the challenge that you wish you had. Yeah. Social security, right? Jack mentioned social security earlier. When social security was instituted in this country, retirement age was 55. Average fatality year was 59. People were retired four years. Well, now you retire at 55 or 65 now, people are living 90s. In some cases, people are going to be retired longer than they've worked. The Social Security <laughs> system was not created right. for a 30-year retirement. It just wasn't built that way. So yeah. like when you talk about changes and modifications, they just fundamentally has to take place because the, the environment has changed from when it was originally created. You know, Jack, especially what you said as far as as individuals, we can't just have debt and be okay with it because we expire countries. Mm-hmm. When you hear someone 
talk about the incompetence of our government when it comes to spending, would would y'all both say, heck yeah, that's a big course there's incompetence. We don't even have a balanced budget. Or do y'all see it a little more complex? Well, I, so, I, I mean, let me put it this way. I, I have my own opinions on that. But I would also recognize that there are smart people who look at some of these things differently. There are things that I don't think constitute money well spent, and others might disagree. And I, I can't tell you that I'm right, but it's twofold. First of all, you know, the, it's the weight of federal spending that is ultimately the tax, regardless of what tax rates are. It's like if they tax you less, but they borrow the difference, it's still this thing that you have to, that the productive economy has to fund. And what you got to do is keep that burden from getting so heavy that it crushes the productive economy. You know, that's, that's my concern is that we continue to demand more and more out of a engine that's running as hard as it can. People have different preferences for how much they want government to do. And, you know, again, I've got, I've, the fact that I've got a preference that might lead in one direction doesn't mean I'm right. It just means that my preference is one out of many. But ultimately, what we have to do is come together and come, and, and come up with a framework that works. So, like, I'll give an example of a president who I didn't like, but who actually did that pretty well is Bill Clinton. So here's one of the ways I think about it, Dave, and it's interesting because I've got a lot of thought of this. So if I could be president and I could accomplish one thing for the American people in a four or eight year term, what would it be? It would be this, to get the growth in the federal debt lower than the growth rate of the overall economy. And, and, and in other words, we could still run deficits every year. But as long as the debt was increasing more slowly than the economy, what that means is the economy's ability to carry that debt, the, the debt is relatively speaking lighter and lighter. And the only president in the last 40 years who accomplished that ratio was Bill Clinton. Dang. And it wasn't because he, you know, underspent, I wouldn't say, but they kind of balanced the whole, you know, like we got to pay as we go. I, th- I think tax rates were at a reasonable level during his administration for the most part. And and you had a ripping economy, too. You had a ri- well, the, com- yes, the whole time. No question. But what I would say is part of the reasons you had a ripping economy is because you had a lack of idiots. You know, you didn't have stupid policymaking. Yeah. That's, that's the, the thing that so often damages the economy. And I think some of our more recent presidents has been a major issue. There's, there are people, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, that we can all relate or know somebody maybe in our family that's done this, that, you know, you max, you max out a credit card and then you get the introductory rate on the new credit card. And then you roll that credit card balance to the new card and you do that 17 times. And eventually, guess what? The other, you can no longer get credit. Right. And we're, we're like, we're still in good shape, right? We know we we know we can make some adjustments and we can we can save ourselves from this trajectory we're on, right? Individuals can't do that. There's a stopping line. There will eventually be a stopping line for this country too. Where that is, don't know. Why should we Why should we test it though, right? That's not wise. And and Joey, this is such a thank you for doing this podcast, right? Thank you this because I, I would argue that that we could do a much better job in our school system educating around just personal finance, basic economics one on one, just kind of understanding these things and understanding that I, I'm going to vote for somebody? Am I going to vote for somebody who doesn't believe in any type of fiscal responsibility whatsoever or someone that understands there are key risks to this and trade-offs that, that come with that? And so so we're starting the, the educational component today, right? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. what we're doing. I yeah. like it. When someone like me says, man, why we just need to have a balanced budget. I mean, me and Priscilla, we have a balanced budget. That's we don't right. spend more money than you know what we take in each month. How would that affect me if all of a sudden Biden said, all right, Starting now, we are making a balanced budget. I know it's not that simple, but we are balancing the budget. What's the sacrifice on someone like me? Here's here's the real issue with that. Okay, let's say that we, coming into next fiscal year, 
everybody, we're going to balance the budget next year and we're going to stay there. You know, they make everything fit. And then the next year there's a recession. So tax revenues drop 20%. What do you do? That means you've got to cut spending 20%. You're going to bring all the soldiers home? I mean, what are you going to do? It makes more sense to try to say, we'll let that even out over time. We're not going to hamstring ourselves by a rule that forces us to do dumb things in the short. Yeah. So that's the real issue with the balanced budget thing. You know, if you said over time, should we balance the budget? I think you know, truly the prudent answer would be yes, over time we should, which means that in good times we should be running surpluses. And we don't. And we don't. You're exactly right. right? That's Keynes, Keynesianism 101, right? We should, the government should be able to step in. And do the things it takes when we do have those soft spots, right? But in a, in good times, holy smokes, right? Rainy day fund. I mean, people, like, we're all familiar with it individually because that's what we do individ- as individuals. And it's just all of a sudden, like, you land in D.C. and common sense just seems to to not be as common, um, you know, from, from a spending standpoint. Because we should, in good times, we should be creating that rainy day fund for the country. And we're not. And we haven't been forever. We, there's not a single year that we've spent less than we did the prior year in this country. Except one year in the Clinton administration. Really? Yeah. Dang. We had we had a surplus one year in the nineties. That's unreal. You're gonna get fact checked, Jack. Well, yeah. Well, well, there was some off balance sheet stuff that, well, that yeah, accompanied okay. that. I mean, so. I'm, I'm, I'm doing that. I'm saying that based on the way we typical measure typically right. measure C- the correct, deficit. Correct, but you're correct. right. You're right. It, one of the things about like what is the federal debt? There isn't one number. The way that the government me- measures it, it's on a cash basis. You know, like if my company went out and um, made a promise to Dave to pay him a million dollars next year, and I go close the books, the accountants are going to say, well, that's a liability. You've got to show that on your balance sheet. The federal government doesn't do that. The, nonetheless, the liabilities exist, and most of them can be calculated. So the $33 trillion number that he was referencing is an accountant's look at what truly have we promised to pay. Yeah, give me a couple other presidents who did a good job specifically with the economy. Well, I think Reagan did a great job. I mean, you know, he came into a very tough time, and, and was that it, because of Carter, in your opinion, or because it of was just a bunch it was of a, just a trajectory of just bad economic decision making, and uh, and 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 what they kind of got to the point where I remember reading articles as a young man, like, is the presidency just too difficult a job for one person to do? And uh, no, all you have to do is do a few things right. And he he had the uh, the insight sight in terms of the, the the large picture things that needed to be done and then the courage to do them. Um, and, and and so we basically had a 30-year boom coming out of that. You got another one? Yeah. I mean, you, 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 you kind of have to, I mean, if you said presidents who have done a good job with economic policy in my adult life, which is the last 45 years, it's been Reagan and Clinton. I don't know that there's anybody else I would point to and say they've done a good job on balance. Yeah. They've all had, they've all had like lots of negatives to go along with whatever positives they've had. Yeah, agreed. And we were talking earlier, some, sometimes presidents are just either lucky or unlucky based on the economy they inherit. Mm-hmm. Because you implement you implement policies, those things don't take, it doesn't, it takes a while to implement, right? Yeah. It does. It takes a while to, get, to have this stuff kind of go through the economy. I would argue that right now, the higher interest rates, we still aren't seeing all of the impacts, both positive and negative, that happen with higher interest rates. For two years ago, Joey, I mean, there was interest rates were basically negative, and now we're back at a five percent rate. You can get five percent interest rates on your on your CDs now, right? Which is helpful. I, I would argue that that actually is going to be an interesting stimulus program for every single baby boomer out there who's been yeah. losing money safely in cash forever. Well, now some of the people that have you know uh, that are getting five percent are they're going to spend some of that money. 
Yeah. Right, they're going to spend some of that. It's going to be a natural stimulus that didn't have to come from a government stimulus check. It's coming from actually the people's savings and, and or their investment. And that's an organic way to grow an economy. Did you guys agree with the stimulus checks? They were. Well, here's what I would say. The first round of that, you're facing just these complete unknowns. We've got this pandemic. What in the world is that going to look like? I mean, is every third person going to be carried out? Like, was, is this going to be like the Black Death all over again? And so the focus was on let's make sure we don't do too little. You know, the, like if you spend, if you needed to spend a dollar and you spent 95 cents and it doesn't do you any good, what's the point of that? So let's make sure we spend the full dollar. So they did. So hard to, I mean, in retrospect, you look at it and say, boy, that was excessive, but they didn't know that at the time. So I, and, you know, I guess I'm just trying to say, like, if I was a decision maker in that mode at that time with what I knew and what I didn't know, you know, I, I can understand the decisions they made. Now, two years later, Biden comes into office and he, you know, like, like, like the last rounds of stimulus, like what in the world was that about? That, that, that's the puzzling one to me. It's like, I, I can understand the first round, you know, just like I can understand, you know, in 2008, 2009, some of the bailouts that they did. But, you know, at some point, it's like the economy's doing five and you're, and you're going to do what? Just because you think people will like it? Yeah. Well, yeah, people like free stuff. There's no doubt about that, but you're doing a lot of harm. That was our point earlier, too. Like, if we had we, when you have the reserves, when you have a, a rainy day fund, then when that thing happens, yeah, absolutely, 100%, take care of Americans. It's a simple, yes, it's a simple answer. It becomes way more complex when you continue to throw gasoline on top of a fire because in great times, you're choosing not to be fiscally responsible. Now, in bad times, you're adding stuff, right, that that complicates the issue. So that's, that's I think that's that's our kind of main issue is that, when you're doing well, just save a couple dollars. It, yep. It's not, it really isn't as hard as people think it is. We just need to prioritize some of that. Yeah. What was the most significant hit on the American people, the depression or the 08 crash? Because the the Great Depression is, is definitely, I, I don't know if romanticized is the right word, but just in movies, you see the images, you see the guys on the outside of the gate just needing a job and they're pick, you know, I'll pick well, three people. It's, it's, it, this is going back to our generational conversation, right? Because the, the generations, if you look at, for example, Joey, your generation, I would argue that you have probably seen more calamitous events in your lifetime than those that experienced a single Great Depression. And what do I mean by that, right? So you're, so you're millennial generation, right? A little bit before, Gen, little bit before. Gen X. So let's, we'll, we'll go, we'll go with millennials, yep. right? So Millennials, those are born what, early 80s, right? Early to mid 80s, right? So early 2000s, right? So they, they they mature and they come into an age where they get a chance to see the great tech wreck, right? Of 2000 to the 2002, where everybody's investment accounts get just hammered, cut in half minimum. Great. Well, that's that's thing. Okay. So I'm now 19, 20, 21, 22, and I see the stock market is just evaporating in front of me. Okay. It recovers a couple of years. And then, oh, then guess what? The GFC happens, 2008. Seven, eight, right? People are losing their mom and dad lose their home, right? What is happening here, right? We're seeing bailouts at a DC and, and, and DC level, right? Um, a national bailout state. All this is taking place. Economy's getting hammered. A couple wars thrown in there as well. Like I would argue, right, from 2000 till now, I mean, there's been a lot of negative stuff that has taken place. For example, this millennial. So their their distrust in organizations. I can actually, I can see that. I can absolutely see that. So it, it is generational, right, and, and the impact on that. Was the Great Depression horrendous? Yeah, there's a reason why they call it the Great Depression. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, I think there was a more of a collectivism to that. And also you didn't have the, you also didn't have the resources of the social safety nets available back then also, which compounded the issue. 
Now, what does that do? That that means that individuals and churches and families get you know get a chance to help support and step up, which I don't think we do as much of that now as we probably should. Right? We should empower and equip right people to help each other out, which which I think would be a great economic you know benefit for us to do so. Um, but it is. It really is. Ask each generation kind of the impact of that, and I think you'll get multiple answers. No, I think your perspective is a good one. I mean, if you look at the the raw economic numbers that people tend to look at, the number one is the employment rate, unemployment rate. The Great Depression hit a bottom way below 2008-2009. But there are some other measures in which 2008-2009 was just as bad and just as hard. And I think to Dave's point, you know, part of the other thing in terms of people's psyche is this, if every through few years something really bad happens and I can't ever count on getting ahead, that really does something to the kind of like the collective perspective, which is, I think, one of the reasons why you've got just such unhappiness with People like are you? Do you think the United States is going in a good direction or a bad direction? I mean, the 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 bad direction percentage has been very high for a long time. People want to feel there's opportunity, right? That's really they just want a fair shot, a fair shake at it. And it, the sense now is like the game's rigged, right? It's kind of rigged. We could do more there, right? We could we could absolutely do more from a, from a standpoint of of just just opportunity, right? And and I and I would argue that uh, that this is 100 percent still the the land of opportunity. Why are yeah. people dying to trying to get into this country because of what we have in place? Because of our legal system, right? Um, which we which we didn't talk about, but we have the the best. <laughs> it might be the worst legal system in the world, but it's the best legal system in the world as well. Uh, and that's you know calling balls and strikes is is, is, what, is what you need, right? Uh, from from a uh, from from a, from running an organization, running a company. Jack, you can talk about this, right? Uh, as well, small business runs this country. Many people think, from an economic standpoint, that you know Amazon and Google and the, like those are the biggest employers in this country. Not even close. It's small business that runs and employs the majority of people in this country. Uh, and we should always be mindful of that, that it is small business, that, that we need to continue to, to, to create laws, reduce regulatory constraints, right? accommodate that, that small, small investor, give, give the, the small investor and the small business the ability to, to access capital to do that. That's what's you know, interesting about this whole big bank lending thing and the regional banks that generally lend right to small businesses. They irrigate the economy, and we need to be mindful that these com- the banks need to need to be healthy, and we need to have a healthy banking system in order to do that. Jack, why don't you touch on that for a sec? Because you you've run small businesses for a long time. That's probably the majority of the audience, right? Are uh, employed by some type of small business. Yeah, and that's right. What are those things that that well, matter to you? It's one of those things that's really kind of funny because people think you know American business. They think you know the S and P five hundred, the biggest companies, and and what's interesting is by the time you get to be that size. Generally, you're shrinking employees, and and it, the, the the economic dynamism comes from people who are continually starting new businesses, and some of them fail, but a lot of them take off and employ more and more people, and that's where the growth in employment historically has always come. Yeah, and uh, this is where I think the regulatory impact is really underestimated. For the big companies, it's just the cost of doing business, and they're good at it. They've got the armies of lawyers and. But you're, you know, a small business person. You got 20 employees, and you might be you can go to 25. But now you got this regulatory requirement. My, one of my favorite stories from like the 2000, you know, from the early years of the Obama administration was I had this friend with a very successful business and 10 employees, and and uh, you know they're coming into a, out of a year where uh, you know they had had a pretty good year, but he only hired one person, and that was to handle compliance. So his productivity essentially went so. He went from 10 to 11, so his productivity went down by 9%, <laughs> right? 
because he wasn't doing anything more for customers. This wasn't helping him serve more people or serve them better. It was just complying with rules. And if you looked at the number of people that we're employing in this country that do nothing but comply with rules, it's crazy. And the banks are kind of the worst example. They've got regulators all over them. And I can't tell you how many conversations I have with bankers, because I deal with a lot of different companies, where it's like the bankers basically saying, here's what we'd like to try to do, but we got to get this by the regulator. So here's how we're going to have to do it. And that's if they can, you know? And again, not that like people are doing things, I don't mean they're doing things that aren't above board. Far from it. They're they're realizing they've got to comply and they've got to and and uh, you know that's that's those are the rules of the game and we got to follow them. But people don't see what the cost of those rules is are and how much damage they do. Or do, do they provide more benefit than damage? I would say very few cases is the answer. Yes. If you had to guess, if y'all had a crystal ball, what's the next ten years look like? It will be, depend on decisions that have not been made yet. So that's what's hard to forecast. But I will just tell you my concern over the at least the near term. We've talked a lot about the irresponsibility of the federal government in terms of their fiscal affairs in recent years. And I don't see either party pushing for more responsibility in the near term. It's just very hard to see that the next occupant of the White House is going to be somebody who's going to have a wise perspective on that. And so I just, my concern is it's going to get worse before it gets better. Now, how much worse and for how long? And the it is inflation? Well, not necessarily inflation, but, you know, if you suppress inflation by suppressing the economy as a whole to the point inflation's going down, the bad news is that twice as many people are unemployed. I mean, maybe that was what you had to do. And I, inflation definitely has to be squeezed out. But the price we're going to pay for that, uh, I, then you got businesses ready to expand again. But if the federal government is soaking up all the savings in the marketplace by funding their deficits, where does the money for investment come? You know, how do we start growing again? That would be my concern. To, to Jack's point, right, it's so hard. It's so hard to predict the future. And I'll give you a, a great example of this one, Joey, is uh, if someone told you five years ago, there'd be a global pandemic and Pfizer would be the leading manufacturer uh, of a vaccine with sales over $70 billion, you know, you'd probably assume that Pfizer stock would, would just would rip, would just go through the roof. And uh, actually, the, Pfizer has lost a, a percent, and the S&P has gone up 67%. Like, how, how does that happen? So really hard. But I would say, because we don't know the future, we can't predict the future, you have to control what you can control as an individual. Because we all, that's what the economy is. is a, it's a collection of all of our individual contributions. And so don't do what the government does, right? Stay, stay within your means. Cre- create margins of safety within yourself and your families and your businesses, right? Do, just, just be prudent and be smart about that, right? I, I think that's the best way to, to kind of just walk into in the un, into the unknown. And I don't know if we're, you know, because this is a Seacoast podcast, uh, I don't know if we're, you know, talking about, you know, the Lord or not, but oh, yeah. I, I would also say 100%, like, God's got it worked out. He's right. got a plan. And so pray to be in God's plan, right? If you're in God's plan, if you're in God's will, doing God's way, you'll never lack God's provision. That is the most comforting, comforting anchor in 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 tough times. Yeah, I, I definitely think through the lenses of not being of this world. And I'm not saying, okay, so I don't have to take responsibility, but I don't have to worry. That's that's the game changer for me that's because right. I used to take responsibility and worry. I mean, I'd worry about the economy and stuff that hasn't even happened yet. And it is a very freeing thing to be like, I'm not of this world. You know, I'll do the best I can. If if someone came up to y'all and said, hey, the the, the American dollar is at some point, it's just going to be valueless. I'm investing in e-currency. I'm going to put all my chips in that hat. What would y'all say? Why do you think that's going to be any better? 
you know, we've done a bad job of managing our currency, you could say. The only currencies in the world where, you know, the smallest single unit, in our case, a dollar, can actually buy something are the dollar and the British pound. Those are the only two. Every other country, including every other developed country, has been through massive devaluations at some time in the last hundred years. So you could look at it and say, we've done a lousy job. We've done a terrible job, uh, the worst job, except for all the others. So I don't know. I mean, I just feel like that's part of the thing. You know, the flip side of that is you could say, w- when you look at it in light of human experience, the United States has been a remarkably well-governed country. But I think part of the reason is, but we, we've because we've maintained a democratic system that with all of its problems, still has the ability to to rise up and change direction, we've been able to pull ourselves back from the brink multiple times. And my hope is we'll do so again. Yeah, I think, Joey, to your point is is it, it may or may not be like a, a cryptocurrency or a digital currency or what, what, whatever the, the term of the day is. I think what you're getting at, which is very legitimate, people want to be assured and have a confidence in a store of value, right? That's what they want. And, and we absolutely can do that within this country, provided we do the right things. And you wouldn't need to have those alternatives. But there's no guarantee. If we continue to make bad decisions, there's no guarantee at all that the currency remains what it is. And so then people will look for other things. Gold has always been that, right? Gold has been that one thing that people do rely on to have a store of currency, have some gold in their portfolio. Sure, of course, I get it. Like I emotionally, 100% psychologically understand that. And the people just want to make sure that they have a store of value that the things that they've worked very hard for, uh, and whether it's crypto today or whether it's uh, some you know basket of metals tomorrow, don't know. But that's that's a very valid response to to seeing the creation of fiat currency and then the explosion of debt that's taking place. No. All right, name the three worst presidents. <laughs> <laughs> listening there's a link in the show notes to our podcast facebook page where we talk about these episodes and share some behind the scenes information including guests we're booking make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode